I was watching a Joe Rogan interview with Andreas Antonopoulos, and in two hour and 18 minute discussion, Antonopoulos never mentions this issue that I think is the number one reason why cryptocurrency will never be used as money in the US. So if you're wondering about cryptocurrency, here's what almost no one's telling you. 10 years into the life of Bitcoin, the quality of this discussion is so incredibly poor. Um, let me say first that this is analysis and commentary, not investment advice and not tax advice. So Joe Rogan, Antonopoulos is an expert. He's got a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos, no doubt millions of views. Uh, and Joe Rogan, uh, he's a guest on Joe Rogan. They're talking about cryptocurrency. It's, I think it's a, it's a good discussion. As Joe Rogan is asking for, is getting excited about it and says, hey, this is, this is great. What can, what can I do? What can anyone do to help speed the adoption of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as taking over as the, as the currency? Antonopoulos talks about, well, it's just time and innovation. Right? There's, nothing, there's, there's nothing that we can necessarily do. It'll happen. It'll take its course. Antonopoulos talks about uh, denial. Uh, the, the five stages of grief for the banking system, the banking system's in denial. Um, and and so in my mind, this would have been an appropriate place to, to talk about uh, what, what I want to say here. The issue is, that, is the IRS. So the IRS said in 2014, they basically put out an FAQ. And in that FAQ, they make clear that Bitcoin is property. And Therefore, the way that tax works for any property is also applicable to Bitcoin. So you might not be surprised to learn that if you're buying and selling Bitcoin, that you'll have, if you're trading on an exchange, let's say, that you'll have a, uh, that you'll have a tax liability, just like um, you would have any tax liability that you have for, any, for anything that you're speculating on. Okay, so that's not really what I think is the, is the, is the main thing that people are not talking about. The issue is that when you go buy that famous cup of coffee with Bitcoin, right? The IRS will consider that if you bought Bitcoin when it was at 5,000, just to pick a random number, and when you go buy that cup of coffee, Bitcoin is at 6,000, the IRS says that is a taxable event. And so when you buy that cup of coffee, you'll need to make note of that record, right? That is a I bought at 5,000, I sold at 6,000, and that is a line that you will put on your tax return in addition to the tax liability that has been created from your purchase of 5,000 and your sale of 6,000. So this is an incredibly cumbersome and harsh rule. Um, and in this example, it was very simple. You bought it at 5,000, that's simple. But Probably, if you're someone who's paying for things in Bitcoin, you might have hundreds of transactions or thousands of transactions. And so you would need also for every one of these transactions to know what your average price is. Right? And then also, you would need to determine on your pile of Bitcoin that you used when you bought, uh, spent a fraction of one to buy a cup of coffee. Do you, did you buy that cup of coffee with uh, your oldest Bitcoin that you have in your pile? That's called FIFO, an accounting perspective, or do you buy it with the most recent Bitcoin that you have in your pile? The IRS doesn't tell you, and so you have to make some assumptions. And obviously, 
whichever way you decide will also determine what your average price is also. So like I said, it's incredibly cumbersome. And when I say the IRS doesn't tell you, this is just one of the things the IRS doesn't tell you, right? So if, if you sit down with a tax expert at the end of the year to, to figure out what to, what to do, you get used to that person telling you, the IRS hasn't told us exactly what to do. You could do it this way, you could do it this way, you could do it this way. I think you should do it this way, but you will be taking the risk that they might come back to you in a couple of years and tell you that you did it the wrong way, right? And so this is for, for example, how do wash sales rule, the rules work? How do I treat airdrops? Uh, how, how, how are hard forks treated? Is it subject to foreign account reporting? Uh, what, what is no longer a gray area is IRS code 1031, like kind exchange. So in the new Trump tax rules, it, in the old days, if you sold Bitcoin to buy, let's say, Litecoin, then that was a gray area as to whether that was a like kind exchange or not. Now it isn't. Trump tax rules came out and said uh, the like kind exchange is only for real property, real estate. So depending upon the volume that's going through Bitcoin and the price, it might be expensive compared to something like Litecoin, right? So you might decide to sell your Bitcoin, buy Litecoin, and send your Litecoin to someone else where they might swap from Litecoin back into Bitcoin. Okay, well now, the US dollar price where you sell every one of those transactions has to be converted to US dollars. The US dollar price where you sell it, sell your Bitcoin to buy Litecoin at the US dollar price where you buy the Litecoin, all those needs to need to be part of your tax records and then dispose of it at what the US dollar price of Litecoin is at the time. So, so this is very cumbersome. There appears to be a significant amount of non-compliance. Um, the IRS went to Coinbase since of course Coinbase is a centralized place where people are buying and selling cryptocurrency. And this is from, I think this is what I'm going to read you is from a tax filing. They took, the IRS took a cutoff point of $20,000, right? And they said, um, they said only 800 to 900 taxpayers reported gains related to Bitcoin in each of the relevant years. And that more than 14,000 Coinbase users have either bought, sold, sent, or received at least $20,000 worth of Bitcoin in a given year. Okay. so. 14,000 users, 800 to 900 reported gains. Um, so, okay. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't a total tax podcast, so just hang in there. I'm not going to, to go, to go, uh, to go too, too far deep into this, too, too much deeper into this. But think about how cumbersome it is to trigger a tax reporting and payment liability every time you spend your so-called money. Right. And and in a world where we're all using Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency as our day to day money. OK, consider the scenario where Bitcoin is is rising, generally rising over the course of the year. Right. In that case, every time you spend money, it's a taxable event. I'm sure the applications will get better. Services like BitPay, 
will maybe keep track of all this for you. And at the end of the year, you could just download something and write a check and, and it's done, even though I think it's an expensive way to do it and very cumbersome. Okay, in that scenario, not so bad because it's gone up and you've been making some money along the way too. But in that world, it would certainly be reasonable that people will want to start to be paid in cryptocurrency. And even if your employer won't pay you in cryptocurrency, maybe you just take your dollars and you immediately buy cryptocurrency and that's what you're using as payment, uh, as money all year, right? Well, consider for a minute a scenario that happened in the, uh, in the tech boom and bust. So in the late 90s, something that happened is that um, as these companies were going up 10 times, 50 times, 500, 1,000 times in percentage terms, what would happen sometimes is the founders would have options that vested and creating a taxable event. So option vested for $100 million. They had a tax liability of, let's say, $30 million, just to pick a number out of thin air. The person thought that the stock was going to keep going up, so they didn't sell any shares. And then when the shares of the company went down 98 99 100%, when everything went bust, they had roughly no money and a $30 million tax liability, right? So, so the point I'm getting at is this. The scenario I just gave you was in a world where Bitcoin and crypto were going up over the course of the year, right? But if you're keeping all your day-to-day -day money in, in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, right, then your tax liability is triggered each time you are paid, whether you're paid in dollars or cryptocurrency, right? And so if you... If you have everything swapped into cryptocurrency and then it goes down 90% during the year, you still have a U.S. dollar tax liability at the end of the year, right? So th there are reasons why just having the government say that your liability is in U.S. dollars creates a very significant incentive for, for people to own and for people to transact in dollars as a currency. So that's the first point. The second point is I hear all the time that Bitcoin is harder money than the U.S. dollar because the supply of Bitcoin is capped at 21 million, actually just slightly below 21 million, but we'll call it 21. And the dollar has no cap. There could be an infinite amount of dollars. Uh, and so to that, I would say the first thing is that we've had hard forks before. We can get to 21 million and then Bitcoin will fork and there is a... And now there's a new, there, is, there are new 21 million of a Bitcoin derivative. And they can fork again, and it's another 21 million. They can fork again, it's another 21 million. So, so that undermines, so, so that uh, reality undermines the argument that, that there's a limited amount. And that's just talking about Bitcoin. Now, with altcoins, for example, I'm going to read something that was posted at uh, bitcointalk.org by someone, by poster. Uh, named Fish Eater, he says, since there are so many garbage coins out there, I decided to create this course to teach you how to create a new altcoin. It's so simple, I can usually do it within two hours. LOL. I still don't get why Bitcoin's worth more. Everything is created from nothing, and it's worth nothing. So this course is just that he, he, he tells you, he, he shows you how, how to do it. Um, and, and also, I'll talk about this. J.W. Weatherman has a cryptocurrency-related podcast, he, he says the following, quote, 
Litecoin is essentially a copy of Bitcoin with a few unimportant variables changed. If you wanted to create a more secure cryptocurrency, all you would have to do is go fork Bitcoin right now, get some people to throw hash power at it. It would be as secure or more secure than Litecoin because there'd be more hash power behind it and it would be ASIC hard. I would say ASIC resistant. Later, he says, if you think that's useful, I can tell you how to make Litecoin that's better than Litecoin. Go to GitHub, clone the repo, fire up a few miners, and you've instantly got something that's better and more secure than Litecoin. It doesn't have the marketing cachet, but as far as technologically valid and valuable, that's going to be more valuable. So there's a bunch of wonky technical terms thrown about in there, but my point is that this is not difficult to do. It is not, it is very simple to create more and more uh, altcoins. And this, and those later quotes were um, from J.W. Weatherman. He is sympathetic to this idea of, of Bitcoin maximalism. And what, Bi what Bitcoin maximalism is, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll screw this up a little bit, but it's basically the idea that the currency that, that has the best features will be the one that is widely adopted and it's a winner-take-all game, which I don't agree with, but the winner-take-all game aspect. But, uh, but so the, the best cryptocurrency will be the one that ends up winning, and that's the thing that everybody will use. And therefore, if you are spending your time, energy, money, resources on building altcoins and promoting altcoins and selling altcoins that are not clearly superior in features to Bitcoin, then not only are you not helping, but you are actually scamming people because you're spending your time creating these things and selling them to people that along this line of thinking are clearly going to be worth zero because Bitcoin is going to be the thing. And so if it's not clearly better than Bitcoin, then it's a scam. And by the way, I think the maximalists would also say, if it is better than Bitcoin, then Bitcoin is just, why wouldn't Bitcoin just adopt that thing? Therefore, going back to the point that Bitcoin will ultimately win. Um, so even as someone who I think is sympathetic to that view, he explains how easy it is to make these other, to make these other coins. Part of why I say I don't think it's true that it's winner-take-all game is Friedrich von Hayek, which is a, a, a Nobel laureate and Austrian school economist, which a lot of the cypherpunks, the early cryptographers that the crypto movement was born out of, were, were very sympathetic to this whole view. Hayek wrote in, uh, in a, a publication called Choice in Currency, the Austrian idea is that we, the government should allow competing currencies, right? And that, if, and that if there were competition to the dollar, then the U.S. government would be forced to manage the dollar in a responsible way. Because if they didn't manage it in a responsible way, people would dump the dollar and buy this other competing currency. So the existence and legitimate threat of this competing currency would keep the U.S. government from... Uh, from irresponsibly managing our money. Next point I want to make is about intrinsic value. So very frequently I'll hear uh, during the course of a debate, an anti-Bitcoin person will say, it doesn't have intrinsic value. What's the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? And the Bitcoin person will say, nothing has intrinsic value, okay? So this makes me cringe when I hear this. And 
you can be sure if anyone says nothing has intrinsic value. They haven't thought deeply about things that you can do with your money. So for example, one way to think about intrinsic value, not the only way, but is to say, if you bought something that you were to never sell, what is the what would you pay for this asset that you would buy and hold forever? So if there's a company that earns $100 million a year in profit after tax, after, uh, after reinvestment, and let's say it's been growing at a low single digits percentage point growth, and you can analyze the business with some, in some extent, that thing might be worth it's making $100 million a year, right? That thing might be worth $800 million, a billion, a billion two. Maybe if you think it'll have very large growth later, maybe it's worth $2 billion, or maybe it's got assets that are valuable. Okay, that's all part of the analysis. The answer isn't zero. That, that has intrinsic value, right? Now, currencies, the way that we're used to looking at current... Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that uh, Bitcoin has no value because there's no intrinsic value. I'm sympathetic to gold and silver. And there is also, it's very difficult to argue what the intrinsic value of gold and silver is also. So I'm not saying that this means that, uh, that Bitcoin's worthless or something like that. I'm just saying that, I'm just saying that if people say that nothing has intrinsic value. They're wrong about that. And frequently they'll bring up this idea of Gresham's law too. Gresham's law is an idea that Good money drives out the bad money. And here's a, here's a simple idea of what Gresham's Law is in practice. Before 1965, here in the US, a quarter was made with 90% silver. Right? If you look at the edge of a quarter now, you'll see a copper band around the edge of the quarter. When I was a little kid, I remember sitting there and comparing these quarters because you would have quarters that were uh, like the quarters we have today and have a commodity value of you know that that's worth roughly nothing and you would also you have other quarters that don't have that copper bar around it they just have a the whole the whole coin including the edges has a silvery silvery look and so you know back in those days you could you could actually find these in circulation and the ones that were silver you would you know put in your drawer you would pocket and not spend and you would only spend the other ones so the point is that the good money drives, the bad money drives out the good money. The bad money is this coin that has roughly no commodity value. The good money is the coin that has a commodity value that is roughly equal or even greater in some circumstances than, than, the, uh, than its face value, right? So the good money ends up being hoarded because it's been driven out by the bad money. This is not an explanation as to why winner takes all. You can even say when von Hayek talked about the value of having competing currencies, right? And to say, and if you even think, uh, if you go back and listen to what someone like Ron Paul has talked about, libertarian, this is very, this is very consistent with the ethos of a lot of the original um, uh, cypherpunks. He talks about the, that the government should legalize competing currencies. He doesn't, he might have an opinion about, well, gold is good, the dollar is bad, etc. But he is not asserting that everyone should do this or should do that. What he's saying is that there should be a choice. By the way, the current value of the metal in one of those quarters is about $2.70 if, if you have one of those. Um, from a security perspective, exchanges are a risk even now. So 
Antonopoulos says he has 50, he, he limits his exposure to exchanges to the minimum possible. He says he has 15 minutes of exposure to exchanges. Uh, that if he needs to do something on exchange, the time he'll send his money in, do what he has to do, pulls money out. Right? And this is not specific to him. If you've listened to a ton of, uh, of, of, of experts, they will all tell you <laughs> pretty much that it's only a matter of time before you're hacked, your wallet is hacked, or something bad happens if you're on exchange. And so, uh, and so that's still a problem. Coinbase says it holds 98% of digital coins in cold storage, and that so two percent is online, and that their insurance covers at least that two percent, right? So I read that to say ninety-eight percent is not insured, although it is in cold storage, and somehow we should feel better about that as being an, an added, uh, an added protection. Um, the next point is is legal tender laws. So. When I was preparing for this, I started to write something up about this particular point. But at the, at the time, also what was brought to my attention is that a, a congressperson has introduced a bill, uh, Congressional Representative Sherman, Democrat from California, who's on the Financial Services Committee and Foreign Affairs Committee, introduced a bill to disallow crypto ownership uh, for Americans. And I'll just tell you what he says. Now, before I say that, let me tell you the point he makes. So I think it's an interesting one. He makes the, he uses the analog of a plastic gun. When he says plastic gun, I take that to mean a 3D printed gun, let's say, right? And so what he says is, okay, uh, these are my words, but his point. Okay, you have a constitutional right to have a gun. What can you do with a 3D printed gun that you can't do with a gun that you legally go and buy, right? For all the purposes that you would like to have, a, for that that would, you would like to have a gun. The the advantage that the 3D printed gun has is singularly for those who wish to commit a crime and circumvent the law. Okay, so this is what he says about crypto specifically. I look for colleagues to join me in introducing a bill to outlaw cryptocurrency purchases by Americans, in part because an awful lot of our international power comes from the fact that the dollar is the standard unit of international financial finance and transactions. Clearing through the New York Fed is critical for major oil and other transactions, and it's the announced purpose of the supporters of cryptocurrency to take that power away from us to put us in a position where the most significant sanctions we have on Iran, for example, would become irrelevant. Whether it's to disempower our foreign policy, our tax collection enforcement, or our traditional law enforcement, the purpose of cryptocurrency, the advantage it has over sovereign currency, is solely to aid in the disempowerment of the United States and the rule of law, he said it. Sherman then goes on to, dis to uh, talk about Islamic fundamentalist group Hamas and their attempt to solicit cryptocurrencies. And he adds, the advantage cryptocurrencies have over traditional mechanisms is singularly a benefit for those who wish to commit crime. So I would just say, is there any greater threat to the power of government than to defund it? Is there any greater threat than that?
And, you know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, he talks about incentives, 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 incentives. You show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. And so <clears throat> thinking about this, as I was just talking about the, the incentives for the U.S. government, that's, that's pretty clear or should be pretty clear. Um, how about the incentives of, in this idea of Bitcoin maximalism, the Litecoin uh, creator uh, created this currency, cryptocurrency, that went from at one point trading at about three cents to currently about $104, right? So that's a pretty amazing financial incentive for someone. And while that incentive exists, I think at the moment we have, I don't know, 2,000 cryptocurrencies, give or take a couple hundred. I think that number, if cryptocurrency doesn't collapse and the price does well and continues to do well, I think that number will continue to go up by an enormous amount. Speaking of, uh, of incentives also, there's a great interview by a cypherpunk named Tim May. Uh, he solves a difficult problem working at Intel in the early years. He wrote the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto. He wrote a 10-year anniversary uh, uh, article for, for Coindesk. He made the point. He's, he passed away recently. He was good friends with Nick Szabo. Nick Szabo did a bunch of the pioneering work on proof of work. And he made this point, as Nick was working on it at the time. He said, just because you can prove to me that you've done work, why does that mean that I should value it? Right? So if you can prove to me that you built a giant hole in your backyard, and then you filled in the giant hole, why, why should I value that? Right? And it's a good question, because like I said, there's a similar argument for gold and silver. People might say, well, if gold cost $1,000 an ounce to mine, then you should, then that's, then that's somehow related to its intrinsic value. Is it though? I'm not sure that it is. Um, just because you pay $1,000 an ounce to mine it, it's not clear to me that that means it should be, it should be that I should value it at $1,100, let's say. Um, <laughs> there's a point. There's a point of genuine absurdity that I have to mention, which is that someone's debating. I, I, I think because, they're, because someone might have the view that we're not using dollars at some point in our future anymore, and what the banking system does is hold our dollars, that the banking system, we, we, we won't need the banking system anymore. Right? The whole banking system will go away. And it's not surprising to me that Someone might not know a lot about what the banking system does, but it is surprising to me that a person who doesn't know what the system does will also assert that the whole thing is about to go away, right? And so, for example, if we're all using cryptocurrency as, you know, on our, as our, for our day-to-day -day currency needs, then does that mean no one will need to borrow money to buy a house anymore? Does that somehow change that dynamic? Right. There, there's an enormous amount of services that the banking system provides. And the currency that we use to transact in has very little effect on the vast majority of those services. And even beyond that, <laughs> I, heard a re I heard a reasonable debate, I thought, where someone was saying the whole investment banking system won't even exist anymore. Okay, so... I don't blame people for not really understanding what investment banks do. They're typically not uh, consumer-facing, uh, and so 
And so most people don't come in contact with investment banks in, in their regular, regular lives. And even when I started working for an investment bank out of college, I, I, I didn't really know a lot about what investment banks did. But just as a so uh, allow me this diversion for a moment. What does an investment bank do? Okay, let's say, let's say I've got a great idea where I want to make an electric car company. And I've spent a bunch of money, I've made a prototype, I've done a bunch of R&D, I've, got, I've gotten a bunch of press, and I've been able to get orders for 100,000 cars that I'm selling for $100,000, right? So success, right? It's great. That's a huge success story. You've got orders for $10 billion worth of product. The first thing that you'll need to do is to build a factory, buy materials, um, you, you'll build the machines that build the, that build the cars. You will need to spend probably in excess of $10 billion, certainly in the, in the beginning. But let's just say that you have had this hugely successful thing happen, and you now need to raise $10 billion. So where, where are you going to get the $10 billion? You're not going to go to your you know, local commercial bank, knock on the window between the glass and say, uh, Hey, uh, remember me, I've had a checking account here for 10 years. No, you go to an investment bank. And at the investment bank, there'll be an investment banker who covers the auto industry. He or she will know, uh, will know all the companies well. He'll understand their business as well. He'll probably even know the individuals well. And that person can, will understand your business and will... and and that person and other investment banks will compete with each other to provide you advice on how to raise the money and, and, and maybe even business strategy. And then also, let's say they decide that you're going to borrow the money, let's say, right? Well, the investment bank will create the securities, right? The debt securities don't exist. The investment bank creates the securities and then we'll take you on a roadshow to meet a bunch of institutional uh, uh, credit debt managers who professionally are managing large pools of money that they lend to businesses. And you will present your business to all these people that have been introduced to you by the investment bank. Then the investment bank has a sales force and the sales force are comprised of individuals who know who all these uh, debt fund managers are. And so they will do, you know, the equivalent of an IPO is what happens for stocks, but this is for bonds. They'll sell those bonds. The sales force at the investment bank will sell those bonds to those investors. They'll raise the $10 billion. They'll take their fee, which is some, you know, lower mid-single digits percent, and you'll have $10 billion, right? So this is one of... You, you, there's there's a bunch of other functions, but here's my point. What is it about whether we are buying cars in U.S. dollars, yen, New Zealand dollars, cryptocurrency, whatever, that changes that dynamic? Nothing. What changes about the fact that in most businesses, if you want to grow, you need capital in order to do so? And there's, there's a, a very thoughtful and sophisticated way about about how to raise that capital, and what you're giving up in order to get that capital. And that's primarily what investment banks do. So all this 
so all of this is, I, I, I want to mention Stan Druckenmiller, who I mentioned in, in another, in a post that I just made. He's asked, phenomenal, good guy and phenomenal, phenomenally brilliant hedge fund manager, one of the best ever. He's asked about Bitcoin. He says, in that same interview I posted in, in the other video, he says, I look at Bitcoin as a solution in search of a problem. I don't understand why we need this thing. I just, I don't need to be playing in Bitcoin. I wouldn't be short it. I wouldn't be long it. And I don't think I'm a Neanderthal, which is what I'm called when I say I don't want to own Bitcoin. They keep telling me it's a store of value, like gold. Maybe. I mean, it could go to a million, but I don't understand why it's a store of value other than you can't create it. Well, there's lots of things you can't create that aren't going to a million. My point about this is not to say, he's not telling you what to do, right? He's saying, I don't understand this. I don't understand why this is going to go to a million. And you could be sure that he's been pitched by some of the brightest minds, no, no doubt. Um, so two things I would say. One is that if he's telling you that I don't, I don't understand why this is going up, that should, that should give you pause and, and encourage you to sharpen your pencil if, you're, if you do think it's going up. The other thing is he would also probably just say, if you, if you, he would probably just say, look, I've, I've done well because I understand certain areas of the market, certain ways I like to invest, and I, I stick to that. I don't have to have an opinion on every single thing. It's not to say that people who think it's going to a million are wrong. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm say, he's saying, I don't get it, and I don't need to get it, right? And so I mention this because I think it's guidance in terms of clear thinking of how we should all approach things. These things should make sense to us. We should figure out what, is, what exactly is your thesis. Why do you own this? And, and again, the first point I made about tax, or, or really almost any of the points, it doesn't mean because of that because of that particular thing that Bitcoin will go to zero, right? It just means that if your vision of the future is that in the U.S. we will all be using Bitcoin, then I think that's unlikely. It doesn't mean it won't go to a million, right? But I think if that is your thesis, then I would then I I would question that. Now certainly. Um, we are in such early stages, the technology will advance, the exchanges will advance, the means of payment will advance, the, the, the apps on your phone will advance. You know, this is like early 90s internet period, and in 10 years or 20 years from now, we will no doubt have huge advancements. Um, but it also fundamentally uh, prompts the question of, is owning Bitcoin specifically, or Ethereum specifically, or Litecoin, is that going to be the thing that benefits? For me personally, I would have thought that uh, it would be a huge benefit for gold and silver, that, that, uh, that in this, uh, that we would have tokenized, um, that we would be able to exchange on the blockchain in digital form, uh, a claim to gold or silver, and that I thought that would be great for, for gold and silver. It would be stable. It would create a tremendous amount of stability. Uh, it would also mean that the amount of these digital tokens could only expand commensurate with the amount of physical gold or silver that's in the 
that's in the warehouse. Um, and so I've been wrong about that. Now, I, I totally understand that this would violate one of the major thrusts of, 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 of Bitcoin, that it's trustless, permissionless, and decentralized. It would remove the decentralized aspect of it. If you have a warehouse with gold somewhere, then you lose that decentralized feature. And so I, and so I totally take that on board. But I think the benefits that it provides totally outweigh the the costs of uh, violating some of the ideological ideological purity of it. But that said, I've been wrong. I'm not holding my breath that that'll that that'll change. But and I know that this is not a new idea. That there's been people who have talked about that. So so that's it. Thanks for listening. And if you think I'm wrong, then I would love to know why. Uh, and so post below and let me know.